This is Jimmy Popular. I'm a DJ every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. on WPRK 91.5 FM in beautiful Winter Park, Florida. In between playing the very best new wave music of all time, I tell stories about life in the big 80s. I'm collecting all those stories together in this podcast, starting with the mostly true but partially made up and definitely embellished story of Nate Flagler. Nate was the homecoming king at Redlands High School in Pennsylvania. He dreamed of someday being a Hollywood publicist. Telling this story is going to take a while, so I've broken it into small chunks, like a Kit Kat bar. Now's a good time to mention that the story contains some adult situations from an adolescent viewpoint. It doesn't have any swear words in it at all, which is remarkable actually, but it does have some pretty frank moments. I came here in a time machine that you invented, and I need your help to get back to the year 1989. Chapter 3. I'm Dreaming of a Tidy Whitey Christmas. Sunday, December 24th, 1989, 7.15pm. The service that night at the New Jerusalem Baptist Church was a candlelit affair in our small sanctuary, which was packed wall-to-wall with familiar faces. My family took up two entire pews with grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and parents and siblings and spouses. It was the only time of year that everybody went, and for that reason it was my mother's favorite night of the year. The room was hung with pine boughs and gold ribbons, and it would have been entirely tasteful if someone hadn't put Mrs. Clymer's son in charge of designing the living nativity that dominated the stage leaving only a small space for the new pastor to stand. It was a live-action manger scene, including not only the standard gospel characters, Judy Harder as the Virgin Mary, by the way, but also a collection of historical figures who probably wouldn't have been available to follow the Magi's star. For instance, among the 30 dramatically posed costumed characters gathered in adoration around the feed trough, I recognized Adam and Eve, who wore garlands of strategically placed holly over flesh-colored tights, Joseph in his amazing technicolor bathrobe, Moses carrying the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, each one wrapped as a Christmas gift, David and Goliath, King Herod with John the Baptist's head, kind of malformed plaster head on a platter, Judas Iscariot clutching a bag of chocolate coins, Pharisees and Sadducees, as well as a selection of angels and shepherds and wise men and common folk. Among the common folk, I clearly recognized Joan of Arc, Amelia Earhart, and Jackie Kennedy. The central wooden beam holding up the thatched roof of the stable formed a cross high above the crowd, and at its crux hung my homecoming crown, wrapped in thorny vines. My mother had three worried fingertips pressed to her lips as she tried to decide if she thought the nativity scene was too much. Belinda was by her side, trembling and turning red, trying hard not to burst into uncontrollable gals of laughter, in which she was prone to fall victim. Tommy had an arm slung around the shoulders of his long-suffering girlfriend, Rhonda, who was whispering something that included the words, Judy, Virgin Mary, freezes over. I leaned forward to try to read her lips, but Ma gently shoved me back into attention as the hymns began. I pulled back the head of my black Santa Pez dispenser and helped him lip-sync to the current musical selection. None of this would have happened when Reverend Domrick was still here, I heard Aunt Swell whisper. Judy's cousin, Angela Bexton, president of the Future Lawyers of America Club at school, but also known as the Vodka Queen at high school parties, was at the microphone singing a unique a cappella rendition of Ave Maria, her voice soaring in a multisyllabic Latin phrases, which she had somehow infused with a whiskey-throated southern twang. She talked like a normal northerner in real life, but when she sang, she sounded like Winona Judd. It was hot. Again, my mother's assessment was somewhat more tentative. I ran a small talent agency from my locker at Redlands High School, and Angela was the most talented performer in my stable. She had booked this church gig on her own, however. During the song, the Virgin Judy herself looked out over the audience, and her eyes caught mine, and she smiled. And I think she may have winked, but it was hard to tell from that distance, 
and with all those yards of blue and white bedsheet wrapped around her ample body, Ma confiscated my Pez dispenser and hissed, Aren't you turning 17 tomorrow? They always want us to grow up so fast. There was a bonfire in the field next to the church after the service, created from an impossibly tall pile of wooden shipping pallets drenched in kerosene. A tower of sparks shot up into the black frozen sky, throwing a hellish orange glow upon the whitewashed wooden church behind us. In the darkness behind the church could be seen the haunted silhouette of the boarded-up New Jerusalem Christian School building, where I had attended grades 4 through 10 before it shut down forever. I hated to look at it. Instead, I looked for Judy in the crowd, but I only found Sunday school classmates, youth group, buddies, friends of the family, loved ones, so like, nobody. Some of the pallets shifted, and junior high school boys cheered as part of the bonfire collapsed just to the left of the concession stand. In the resultant flash of furious firelight, a movement in the cemetery across the road caught my eye. It was Susan, walking alone toward her real father's grave and carrying a potted poinsettia. I glanced around the crowd, half expecting to catch a tabloid photographer snapping the moment as the forlorn girl left a traditional yet poisonous flower in front of the granite block which flashed in the reflection of departing headlights. Violence-prone daughter honors dead racist dad. I secretly thought it'd make a great cover photo with a sensational headline, but of course I was on Susan's side, and the liberal media should be ashamed of themselves, and so on, right? I thought to myself that I should go to her, but someone called out my name and clutched at my jacket. I turned to look, and I found myself face-to-face with Susan's ex-boyfriend, Leighton Radcliffe. Blech. Leighton was short, dark, slim, ripped, and tonight his tightly curled black hair was covered up by a ski cap with a Speedo logo across the top. I kept a secret dossier on all local villains, and here are the facts about this guy. Leighton Radcliffe, whose family owned two car dealerships and Radcliffe's IGA grocery store, so he could have all the Mustangs and Pringles he wanted without even asking, like for free. Leighton Radcliffe, the unlikely president of the New Jerusalem Baptist Church Youth Group ever since Reverend Domerick got fired or resigned or whatever, and all sense and reason went out of organized religion in our community. Leighton Radcliffe, who won a gold medal in swimming in the Junior Olympics in San Antonio, Texas last summer. I mean, who even watches the Junior Olympics? Leighton freaking Radcliffe, who posed in his Speedo for our high school's life drawing class because the creepy art teacher thought Leighton had such wonderful form, and then Judy Harder won her governor's art scholarship with her life-size rendering of Leighton's bulging swimsuit. No, seriously, drawing Leighton's crotch was Judy's ticket to Cal Arts. If Leighton Radcliffe were a car, he'd be some jerk's wet Trans Am parked diagonally under a streetlight with Foreigner blasting from its exterior speakers in an otherwise quiet neighborhood. Urgent, hot-blooded, head games, cold as ice, dirty white boy, you know the songs. In the summertime, he was a lifeguard at the Redlands Veterans Memorial Pool. And even though summer was far away now, he managed to maintain the look of someone accustomed to sitting high above the rest of humanity, wearing nylon shorts and mirrored sunglasses. Leighton Radcliffe. And you know what made all this twice as objectionable? He had a bloated, egotistical twin brother who was a lot like him, except on the wrestling team instead of the swim team, and with no neck. Like Kent Radcliffe was born without one. You can look it up in a journal of medical anomalies. I couldn't stand Leighton or his double-trouble jerkpot twin, Kent Radcliffe, but they had been a fact of life since they were bonded with my brother Tommy in Little League ten years earlier. Till recently, they were like permanent fixtures in our living room, but luckily their athletic careers were making it tougher for them to haunt the Hotel Ardennes. Hey, Nate, Leighton said hesitantly, his dark eyes squinting past me toward the cemetery, which was dark now that the fire was behind us being brought under control. Actually, I could hear sirens in the distance, and I'm pretty sure someone got burned that night. 
Is that Susan over there? I frowned right at him, right in his face, which I thought was pretty bold. Oh, and he's short too, so I was like frowning down at him. Junior Olympics, Little League, everything about him was little except his ego and his CalArts approved. Nate, you with me? He said, snapping his fingers near my face. Yeah, I grunted, avoiding eye contact. That is her, so? He frowned back, but his frown was trying to look sad, sympathetic, empathetic, something human, and he wasn't pulling it off in my opinion. So she doing okay? Cause I worry about her. She's fine, I told him, trying to loosen up a bit because it was Christmas Eve, because one of his eyebrows was shaking, which was making me feel a little nervous. I didn't even know eyebrows could move independently like that. No reason to sweat it late, and you did enough. He glanced away from the unforgiving darkness and into my equally judgmental face and was about to say something when he was suddenly grabbed from behind by Tommy, who quickly had Leighton and a half Nelson. Oh, aside for their individual accomplishments in swimming and wrestling, the Radcliffe twins were both motorheads who could fix cars almost as well as my brother. Busy kids. We're going to the reservoir, my brother said loudly, dragging the gold medalist along with him. Nate, you joining us? Yeah, no, I sputtered trying to squelch the adrenaline that had been building as I anticipated a fight with Leighton. And you can't even fight with these people, because all they want to do is wrestle, and it doesn't look manly, and basically when you win, you're lying on top of some overheated guy. What's that about? Seriously, when you really think about it. Tommy shoved Leighton away and waved a club-like hand in my face. Yeah? No? Which is it? You got a ride home? And also, I'd never been in a fight before. For some reason, nobody ever wanted to fight with me. I'd never even been punched in the face, and I was almost 17 years old. I guess because I'm so relatable. Yeah, I said. I mean, no, I'm not going to the reservoir. I'm not drinking beer with you and Greg Luganis over there. Last time you guys did that, you ended up in the newspaper. And I'm going home with Ma and Dad and waiting for Santa Claus and Jesus and my birthday. Tommy grinned like a jack-o'-lantern. I realized he was probably high, which was a nice touch for Christmas Eve service at church. Leighton and Kent were clean teens because of being varsity athletes and all but my brother had no such limitations on his good times. Oh, yeah, your birthday. Well, when I get home, I'll make sure I say happy birthday. Thanks, I muttered. I'll look forward. But he was already tearing across the church parking lot toward his Camaro, Leighton following along, but looking back over his shoulder toward the graveyard. I looked back, too. Susan was gone. Later that night, Belinda and I hung up our stockings in the living room despite our advancing years. There are also stockings for our absent older brothers, Johnson and Stanton, one for Tommy and one for the baby, Ma and Dad and Pop and Grandma and Aunt Swell. It was a pretty big fireplace. Ma was rocking in a rocking chair near the Christmas tree, dressed in a voluminous red velvet bathrobe. Dad was crouched on the floor by the fire, cracking nuts for dinner tomorrow. Aunt Swell had an open Bible in her lap, but just kind of posing like Whistler's mother. Belinda was on the phone with The Clicker. The clicker was some guy from Redlands who had been calling her on the phone since she was about 15. If anyone but Belinda answered the phone, he would usually just hang up. If Belinda picked up, he wouldn't say anything. He would just kind of perversely listen to her say, hello, hello, and I guess listen to her breathe, which might be a thrill for some guys, but not for anyone who's been on a family camping trip with her and has been trying to sleep as she breathes and sighs and rolls around uncomfortably just a few feet away. After months of him being silent, Belinda convinced him to hold conversations with her by just clicking once for no and twice for yes. You'd think it would get old after a while, but she still seemed to be enjoying it years later. I mean, we didn't even have cable TV. Are you having a Merry Christmas, she asked him. Then she frowned. But why not? Are you lonely? Click, click. 
I shook my head. Probably a serial killer. Probably, Ma agreed pleasantly. Do you feel any different? You're going to be 17 in a little while. Aren't your mother and father home, Belinda was saying? Click. Oh, are they on a trip? At a party? Click, click. Well, why didn't you go? Didn't they invite you? I feel like I'm 18 and ready for a tattoo, I told Ma. She answered with that same pleasant voice, the one that kept the baby sleeping so happily across her chest. You can have all the tattoos you want when you join the Marines. Maybe I will join the Marines. Are you in the military? I heard Belinda asking. Click. Sometimes she needed inspiration to keep the game going. Marines wake up at 0400 hours and make their own bed, Sue Ellen said. Do you miss the Marines, Aunt Swell? She was not amused. What I miss is a peaceful, quiet Christmas. The last one of those we had was in 1971, because in 1972, our holiday was hijacked. We might as well get this over with. Family story time again. No member of the family could resist letting me know that I had permanently altered their Yuletide celebrations by inconveniently being born at 0400 hours on Christmas Day, 1972, military time. Other Christmas births include country star Barbara Mandrell, who was country when country wasn't cool, Annie Lennox, whom you'll remember from Eurythmics, Jimmy Buffett, Sissy Spacek, who got pig's blood splattered all over her in the prom and Carrie, Clara Barton, who was the founder of the American Red Cross, WKRP in Cincinnati's Gary Sandy, Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone, Anwar Sadat, who I guess is like a world leader, Cab Calloway, Humphrey Bogart, and Sir Isaac Newton. How about them apples? I didn't want Christmas morning to be ruined for the other children, Ma remembered, and I knew if I woke your father up, he would want to leave for the hospital immediately. So I went downstairs and I started organizing the gifts, the stockings, preparing the breakfast things, and just around the time I had the table set, well, I knew it was too late to make it to the hospital. Belinda joined us, having exhausted her supply of yes and no questions for the evening. She sat across from Ma and the baby, but watched them rocking, her eyes shone in the firelight. And then Evan heard her holler, Aunt Swell smiled. Dad looked up from his work and shook his head silently. At this point in the story, everyone had to tread lightly, because if anyone mentioned water breaking or tying off umbilical cords with Christmas ribbon, he angrily told us to change the subject. Despite a well-earned reputation for fecundity, childbirth was not his thing. Ma said, And there you were, born in 15 minutes, right here at home, the biggest and healthiest of all my babies. The part she didn't throw in there at the end of the story was that any time there was a spill on the kitchen floor from that day forward, whether it was Kool-Aid or gravy or water, my oldest brothers would say, Nate, clean up after yourself. And they would laugh and laugh like they were the funniest guys in Redlands. I had dossiers on all of them, and someday they would be sorry. Well, that's the nativity story, so it gets us time for bed, I said amiably. Good night, Ma. Good night, Dad. Good night, Aunt Swell. Good night, Belinda. And Jad. Good night, John boy, they all called as I ascended the stairs. It was traditional. It was always hard to sleep on Christmas Eve, and I was surprised I didn't seem to get any older as I didn't seem to get any easier as it got older. I stretched out on top of the sheets clad only in my tidy whiteies, because my father had uber fixed the furnace and now it felt like Hotel Arden was in a towering inferno. My single window was a navy blue rectangle, through which a shaft of pale blue light fell upon me in quilted fields where I lay counting my sheep. After a while, the digital clock registered four o'clock, and I was suddenly 17, just like that. No one was even there to see it happen. I rolled over and tried to sleep, but it was no use. I'm 17, I said aloud, but it didn't even echo dramatically, and no one responded with a cheery, yes, you are. I stared at the ceiling for a while, and then I held my arm up to look at it in the available light. It didn't look real. It looked like blue plastic without a mark on it. I pivoted my wrist and checked out both sides of my hands, and I was surprised to see that they looked like a man's hands, big and broad, maybe a little clumsy. 
My arms were still too skinny, but my hands had somehow come to maturity when I wasn't looking. Just then I sensed that something had changed outside. Had I heard a noise? Was someone out there? I went to the large window, and despite the overbearing heat of my bedroom that night, I could feel a wave of cold air coming off the glass panes and chilling my bare legs. My underwear looked blue in the strange glow of the Christmas night, and my skin seemed like it was made of stone or something. It took me a full minute to realize what had gotten me out of bed so suddenly. It was snowing outside. I pressed my big hands to the window, and I felt the cold penetrating all the way to my bones. I was in love with Judy Harder, and she was going to be in love with me, and everybody would be happy. The two of us, our parents, our siblings, our friends. It was just perfect, like snow on Christmas, or warm macaroni in a dish, or Andrew McCarthy visiting Molly Ringwald at the record store where she works, or my mother's hand brushing across my father's collar. So I guess that's why I opened the window and climbed out onto the porch roof wearing only my tidy whities. I would say that I first realized it was a foolish impulse when my feet touched the cold tin of the porch roof and steely winter knife cut through my entire body. I think I had planned on making some sort of midnight proclamation to the world I knew. Behold, today I am a man. But there wasn't much time to think about it, because I had forward momentum and I landed face first on the sloping tin, and a moment later I was plummeting to the ground in front of the house. My fall was broken by evergreen shrubbery, but my body was covered in bloody scratches and my underwear was in tatters. There were heavy footsteps in the snow, heavy, drunken, booted footsteps, Tommy coming home from drinking at the reservoir. Happy birthday, he said tiredly, looking down at me. Back in bed, plastered with over a dozen band-aids, I dreamed of Judy in a manger, my homecoming crown gleaming high above her head, and far in the background, shepherds watched over their flocks by night. Thanks so much for listening. The Jimmy Popular Show is written by James Brunlinger and produced by Joshua Dobbs. You can learn more about the podcast, the radio show, or my surprisingly large collection of costumes by liking my Facebook page at Jimmy Popular. See you real soon.